0: Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue included with the podcast today we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge Jesus or faith in general we would love to hear from you and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickhole at crossbridge or send us a text to our text in number at 30:5. 9307006 Once again, thank you for tuning in, and now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle.
1: Tonight's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zarah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. and Amminadab, the father of Neshon, and Neshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David, deportation, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of our Lord.
2: You may be seated. You pray with me. God, we thank you for your word, even your peculiar text that we skip over often. We pray that as we submit now to your word and as we arrive with many different feelings, because it's Christmas time and uh, it brings out conflicting emotions at times, we pray that we would see your overwhelming grace. We would see your faithfulness. We would see your providence. We would see your heart and your character, God, as we look at your history, as we look at your lineage. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin by just asking everyone to thank Crystal for reading off all those names. She crushed it. Now I don't want to pronounce any name because she did it so well. I'm probably going to butcher the names. She, I have to tell you this. She texted me earlier today. She goes, hey, are you really going to ask me to read the entire genealogy of our Lord? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then she gave the, the shocked emoji with the nerd glasses and the thumbs up, which was perfect. The will, a willing spirit. But there's a reason for her reading that. And you'll see that as we go through. The other thing I noticed is I'm going to blow these candles out because last week we almost burnt the place down. So those are going to be out. And then last piece of housekeeping, if you didn't have a chance yet, if you could put up the slide for the text in number, uh, I added some additional notes. If you text the word hi to our text in number, or if you check the events tab on the Uversion Bible app, you can find uh, our digital program, Crossbridge Brickle, uh, tonight. So we'd love for you to download that. You can see some of the songs, some other ways to engage as well. And you can get the additional sermon notes that are placed there uh, for your convenience so you don't have to write feverishly and figure out how to write down a name that I say that you have no idea. But tonight is the second week or the second episode of our series. That we're calling hidden Christmas as we move towards Christmas Eve and many of you are feeling that many of you are excited this is your favorite time of year this is my favorite time of year you love the cookies and the cider and the lights and the decorations and the music and the parties and the giving and receiving gifts Christmas I think is a really unique holiday this Advent season, because not only does it have all of these things that we enjoy and we only participate in one time a year, but it's also nestled in at the end of the year, so it feels kind of cozy. You know, you're closing out a year, whether that was good or bad, but you're looking forward to something exciting in 2020, and there's a warmth to it. There's a warmth to Christmas. People are a little bit nicer. You kind of want to walk outside at night because the lights are up and the decorations, but that warmth can easily begin to build to a boil that is a boil of pressure on you. How many of you are feeling that right now? You're like, I'm almost done with Christmas. You're not a Grinch. It's okay. None of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. No way I'm raising my hand on that. But some of us are feeling it. Like, I'm pretty much done with Christmas music. Uh, Some of you are like, oh my goodness, I would listen to it all year. Like, I'm kind of done with it. Um, Don't really like it, but I try to listen to it because it's, yeah, it's Christmas. Some of you are like, I am so anxious about giving and receiving gifts. I'm, I'm going to get the right gift for the right person. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to give a gift to a friend or a family member and then give that like, oh, thank you. You know, like then you feel horrible. So you're trying to figure out what gifts to give. You have a mil- How many of you have a million invitations that you're trying to figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to, then how to navigate the no's? Some of you are planning and packing already for a vacation that is supposed to be relaxing, but it's stressing you out right now as you think about ending the year and finishing work strong. All these things are, are mounting. And that's what can happen during this Christmas season. This warmth can become this kind of boil or this pressure on us. And many of us also get frustrated with Christmas time because. Maybe you've thought this. You walk around, you see the lights, you watch the movies, you listen to the music, and you're like, man, it's become so secularized. Like the meaning of Christmas is hidden away. Very few people know. I mean, it truly is a religious holiday and a secular holiday all at the same time, and that's okay. It's okay. You don't have to fight against it. In fact, much of what is celebrated during this, the secular side of Christmas is not opposed to the Christian ethic at all. Outside of the celebration of consumerism, the Christian ethic promotes parties and giving and receiving gifts and laughter and joy. All of those things that take place during Christmas are congruent with the Christian ethic. However, what is tragic is that many of us, whether you attend church, you don't attend church, you're just beginning to attend church, doesn't matter, many of us can hide the real meaning, the real foundation, the actual source of the warmth of Christmas, and tuck it away, hide it away to one hour on Christmas Eve when you go to service, you go to mass, and you're like, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. And you have the silent night with the candle and you raise it and and you feel it for a moment. But everything else during the season, the pressure, the lights, the decorations, the cookies, the parties, the anxiety to close the year out, all of that crowds out the true meaning of Christmas. And so we're doing this series called Hitting Christmas because we want to say, hey, enjoy that, but don't arrive at Christmas and Christmas Eve and be like, oh yeah, this is what it's really about. Let's actually look at that part our culture and we as well often hide away and so tonight we're doing that by looking at a very peculiar passage it's the very beginning of the new testament it's matthew chapter 1 the first 17 verses as crystal read it's the genealogy of christ and as she was reading it some of you were thinking when you heard words like perez and zara you're like all right i'm out like i'm out I don't know. All the other names, I was with Abraham. I was good. Jacob, I was good. But once we got Zara, I don't know. And then all of a sudden you were trying to, you're trying to pay attention. You're trying to listen to, you heard like Rehoboam and Jehoshaphat. And you're like, is this Star Wars? Like, are we going to hear Mandalorian next and Baby Yoda? Like, what's going on here? Why in the world would Matthew start His gospel, his book detailing the life of Jesus with the bloodline, the ancestry of Jesus. And why would the church, when it brought together all the books of God's word and compiled it together as a New Testament, why would they put this as the very beginning of the New Testament? Why? There's a reason why. You see, What can easily happen during this season is we can begin to lose sight of the fact that what we are celebrating is not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. Now, fairy tales, fairy tales connect with us, they captivate us, but they offer advice. They offer advice. They're not real, but they offer advice to you. And here, Matthew starts at the very beginning, and he says, listen, I don't want you to think that what you're about to read is a fairy tale. Fairy tales start once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, and now you know that what you're about to read is not true, and it's going to supply you some advice that you can kind of mine out and tease out and apply to your life where you will. Matthew starts and says, listen, what you're about to read is true. It's historical. It happened. And the way that I want to imprint that in your brain is I'm actually going to begin my book with the true ancestry, genealogy, bloodline of Jesus. There's this word that we use all the time in the church, and that is the word gospel. We attach it to different things. When you hear the word gospel, you may think the message of Jesus, the gospel. You may think gospel music because you're on that new Kanye album. You may think the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, those books. Those are all gospel. They all connect with that word. That word, though, literally means news, good news. Gospel means good news. And so as Matthew starts his gospel, his good news, He begins with this tedious genealogy of the bloodline of Christ, his ancestry, because he wants you to see that what he's about to share is, in fact, gospel. It's news and not advice. There's a difference there. Advice is counsel that you give to someone. It's encouragement that you give to someone. I'm going to give you advice. You can take it or leave it, but I hope you take it. News is reported. It's finished. It's done. It's already happened. It doesn't really matter if you, d- you want to disagree or agree. It already happened. It's true. Your call is to respond to the news. So he starts here, and he says, I'm going to deliver good news to you, but I want you to understand that what you're about to read is not a fairy tale. It already happened. It's historical. It is news, and I'm reporting it. And the way that I'm going to set that foundation in your mind is I'm actually going to share you the genealogy of Christ. So that when you read the Christmas story, you don't make it a fairy tale, but you make it a true historical account of what happened. You see this actually even in the Christmas story. You see the story that we know in our minds as the Christmas story is pulled from the different gospels. Matthew speaks of some of the elements that we're familiar with. Luke speaks of some of the elements, and Mark speaks of some of the elements. John starts his gospel very differently because he's writing to a different audience. But here, he starts with no star, no Bethlehem, no Mary, no Joseph, no shepherds, no wise men, with a genealogy because he wants you to receive the news that has been reported to you, not advice, The angels in Luke come to the shepherds. If you remember the story, Jesus is born, the angel comes to the shepherds tending to their field, their flocks by night. And the angel says this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice the language. I come to you, To bring good advice, it's for all the people that you might want to consider the fact that quite possibly the Savior's been born in Bethlehem. And if you want to go check them out, go check them out. If not, just kind of reporting an encouragement to you. It's nothing like that. See, the angel comes to the shepherds and says... It's already happened. It's finished. It's news. I'm reporting it to you, and it's a great joy. Jesus has already been born in the city of David, and then you see the response of the shepherds say, we got to go see him. we got to go see what the angel has said. That's the language. And the reason that that's the language in the Christmas story all throughout it is because the gospel writers want you to see the heart and the character of God from the very beginning. You see, what do you see about God's character When you see gospel, good news, and not good advice, what do you see about salvation? You see that God has come on a rescue mission and you have nothing to do with it. It's already happened, it's already finished, it's already been reported. Salvation is of the Lord, scripture says. Jesus on the cross says, It is finished. All the language we read about salvation, about God's character and His faithfulness, they all point to God acting on His behalf. He's going to do something for you. It is going to be good news to you, not good advice, not encouragement, not counsel. It's already happened. It's already finished. Your call is to respond. In fact, there is never a place in Scripture where we see God's people saying, God, please send us a Savior, send us a Redeemer, send us a Messiah. Now, Jesus was promised for thousands of years, but He was promised... Because in the third chapter of the Bible, God himself promises a redeemer. After the fall, when Adam and Eve sin, God says, I'm going to send one to be born of a woman. And she's going to crush, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be struck. It's a prophecy, Genesis 3.15, of Jesus crushing the head of sin and death, the serpent on the cross. Even though he was wounded, it was like a heel wound. And that prophecy carries through all of the Old Testament all the way leading to this moment, all through the genealogy of Christ to hear so that you would see that this Christmas story is not advice, it is news. It is gospel being reported to you and it is your call to respond to it. And so he founds it in this way because Matthew knows And God knows as he worked through Matthew in writing his words through the Holy Spirit that we twist this a lot. Do you do this? I know I do this. I want to involve myself in everything. I want to feel a part of everything. And so we do this with our salvation. We do this with God. No way God could just deliver gospel, good news that I just have to simply respond to. No way. I have to be a part. I have to earn it. I have to deserve it. There's some way that I got to kind of make it my own so that I feel like it's authentic. We can moralize the gospel from good news to good advice. We moralize the gospel from good news to good advice, and we fictionalize parts of scripture to fit how we want it to apply to our life because we're used to fairy tales, Because they supply good advice, and we like that. Fairy tales are wonderful. They connect with the human heart. They connect with our desires. Little Red Riding Hood, when you read it as a kid, it teaches you, be wary of strangers, especially if they're too nice. Most most of us feel like, you're way too nice. I don't know why, but I don't want to talk to you. You're too nice. Something's up. Three Little Pigs teaches you that it's important to not take shortcuts in life, but to build a steady foundation because you, it will collapse if you, build a, if you go through shortcuts. Your foundation will collapse. Steady foundation. Pour your time and attention into that. That's the advice. Sleeping Beauty says wait for the noble prince to come awaken you from your slumber. Don't manufacture that. It's good advice. Lord of the Rings has, I always have to quote Lord of the Rings, you guys know it, (laughs) has too much advice to share, but one of them is that there's power in community, that when you come together and you're unified as a fellowship, you can overcome great obstacles of evil. Good advice, important, but do we not have a tendency maybe during this season to fictionalize the Christmas story and to make it a fairy tale. Just listen to it. There's a person from another world who's born in a miraculous birth. And that person has powers. Powers to heal the blind and make the lame walk. To make the dead come back alive. And this person... Who comes from another world to save has enemies that want him not to prevail and so they come together and they plot and they plan and they finally arrive at a plan to turn everybody against this person to kill him so they torture him and they beat him and they kill him and they put him in the grave thinking they won but then he comes alive from the grave to save everyone now Are all those elements of that story true? Yes. Does it connect with our heart and our soul like fairy tales do? Yes. Is it a fairy tale? No. So that's what Matthew wants you to see as you read his gospel, as you read the other gospels, as you come to see these things that are so hard to comprehend. God in the flesh, born of a baby in a manger, who healed the blind and made the lame walk and died on a cross and was buried and came forth from the grave resurrected. Don't make it a fairy tale. You want to see his genealogy? He's a real person. This really happened. It's good news that you're to respond to, not advice. That's why he starts this way. And he wants to set you up for something. You see, he's providing this really unknown bloodline because he's setting everyone that reads it up to see who Jesus really is. Now that you know it's not a fairy tale, it's historical, it's real, it happened, it's good news delivered to you, don't twist it, he's setting you up as you look at his bloodline, you look at the details of it to see who Jesus is. Every one of us in this room has been in a group before, and you're in a new group and you don't really know anybody, and there's questions that you have to answer so everybody gets to know each other, right? Some of you are like, I hate that, that's the worst. You share your name, where you're from, what you do, maybe you have always have that like funny question, right? Like share your fun vacation. Share a silly story. You know, you're like, I don't know what to do here. You get really nervous about it. But you do that so that when you come together in the group, everybody can get to know the people in the group. And the way that you get to know people in the group is you know what they've experienced and who they are in their life. Tell me a funny story. What's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? When you have a job opening that you want and you submit a resume, you're doing the exact same thing, right? You're taking all of your accomplishments, your education, your achievements, and you're putting them together in a document so that the employer who looks at it can fast track the ability to get to know you by seeing what you have accomplished and done and learned in your life so you can get to know you. See, in ancient times, you didn't get to know somebody through a resume or through group conversation. You got to know people, who they are, through their genealogy, through their pedigree, their family history. So if you were to meet somebody, it's almost like you'd sit in a group and it's like, everybody pass around your genealogy and you pass it around and you read it. and That's how you get to know people. You get classified and judged based upon your genealogy. Who's in your line? Who's in your bloodline? And so the same way that when you submit a resume to a job, you tinker with it and you make it look as best as possible. And when you share in a group about who you are, you share positive things. No one's like, Uh, My name is Carter. I'm a total disaster. Really failed this week uh, in my job. You know, I've been telling myself I was going to work out for six months, but I haven't done it yet. And uh, just kind of let you know who I am. Like nobody does that, right? You don't submit a resume to a job and be like, "Last job, totally was not qualified for, but I kind of said I was, and you know, I was trying to make my way through because I needed a paycheck." Like you don't share those things. You share the best. It's all the things I've accomplished. Here's what I've learned. Here's why you should hire me in a group. Here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's where I'm from. Here's a story that makes me look good. Whatever it may be, right? The same is true of genealogies. In ancient times, you would tinker with your genealogy. Be like, Uncle Lou, take them out. Don't put them in there. That family, completely (laughs) removed, right? Right? You would take people out of the genealogy and put only the people that made you look good because you knew you'd be classified and judged based upon your pedigree. And Matthew delivers a genealogy here and he doesn't tinker with it at all. He reveals the true pedigree of Christ and it's not flattering. It's really peculiar. Why would he do that? He's about to set it up to deliver good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior, calling people to respond to that. You would think, hey, let's make it look really good in the bloodline. But he delivers the true reality of who came before Christ, who's in his family history. And you notice that because when you read it, there are five women mentioned in his genealogy. Like, hey, what's the problem with that? Well, nothing now. But back then, there was a big problem. See, in first century patriarchal society, nobody put women in their genealogy. No one. Women were second-class citizens. For the years and centuries before, nobody would put a, a woman in their genealogy. Because it didn't benefit you. Didn't make you look better. Didn't raise your classification. And yet Jesus has five women in his genealogy. Interesting. Not only does Jesus have five women... Three of the women are Gentiles. They're non-Jews, and Jews and Gentiles don't get along. Deep hostility, racism, discrimination, Jews view Gentiles as unclean. They want nothing to do with them. They won't worship around them. They don't want to touch them. Jesus has five women, and three of them, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, are Gentiles. Not only does Jesus' genealogy have five women, three of them Gentiles, Some of the women and some of the stories here are not stories that you would want shared. You would not put it on your resume. You would not share it in a group conversation. You certainly would not put it in your bloodline, in your genealogy. For instance, Tamar. Tamar tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her to commit incest. She's included, revealing that Jesus' family history has a lot of dysfunction in it. Then you have Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite. Canaanites in the Old Testament were really the, the enemies of God that were exalted above all enemies of God. They were, Canaanites and Jews were constantly at each other. Rahab is a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute prostitute in Canaanite. She's an enemy of God, and she would have been viewed as an outcast. She would have been labeled a sinner. She's in Jesus' genealogy. And then there's a really interesting line that you can miss, because let's be honest, most of us, if you've ever read the book of Matthew, you get to Matthew chapter 1, you're like, all right, verse 18 is where it begins. Look at verse 6. It says, and David... He's the centerpiece. You want him in your genealogy. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's interesting. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. Why does Matthew not include her name? He signifies who she is. She's included there, but her name isn't. Is it because he's saying something negative about Bathsheba? No. It's because, as you're reading it, he wants you to see the flaws and the sin of David. Think about that. David is the centerpiece of Jesus' genealogy. If you're a Jew, you want to be from the line of David. King David. He is the most famous, most powerful, most loved, most respected, and honored leader and king of... The Jewish people, and yet Matthew writes this and says, "I want you to remember really who David was. David was a man who committed adultery by sleeping with his best friend's wife. You see, Uriah was one of David's best friends. He was a mighty man in the inner circle. Some of the closest relationships David had was with just select few of mighty men. Uriah being one of them. They were best friends." And yet David sleeps with his best friend's wife when his best friend's out to war and then he kills his best friend to try to cover it up. And so Matthew says, listen, you were kind of thrown off by the women featured and the Gentiles and maybe when you saw David, you're like, okay, wow, we have something promising here. But remember who David is. He's an adulterer and a murderer. He's throwing shade on him. Why? Why in the world would Matthew do this? Why would he share this? Because if you were reading this as a first century Jewish man or woman, you would think, poor baby. I mean, this baby has no shot. Doesn't even have friends and family that can write a proper genealogy and exclude the bad people. No shot. Matthew's preparing you for something. Now, what he's preparing you for is the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is opening the family of God. Right here in the genealogy. You see, the family of God was always open to people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and David. The family of God was always open. But there were all these walls and all these restrictions and all of this kind of extra moral code placed upon coming to belief and faith in God. And Jesus arrives as the Savior to break down all the walls and to say, if you feel like an outcast, you can come to my family. You feel like a, a sinner? You feel like people, someone would label you a prostitute or maybe you've had that in your past? You can come to my family. You're a murderer? Come. An adulterer? Come. Dysfunctional? Come. You don't believe me? You don't believe that I welcome all people check my genealogy? See, Jesus welcomes all people to himself. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Matthew is saying. Hey, it's finished. It's done. You don't believe that you're good enough for God. You don't believe that you're good enough to to come to faith in Jesus and that God could come alongside you and heal you and grow you and guarantee you eternal life through faith in him. You don't believe that? Check his genealogy. See who's in his bloodline because Jesus welcomes all people to himself. And the only requirement to be a member, a son and a daughter of God's family, is grace. It's not a fairy tale with good advice. It's good news reported. And the only way that you are welcomed into God's family is through the grace of God. And how do you receive the grace of God? You believe the good news. You believe the good news reported. Jesus welcomes you in. You see, When you come to Jesus, you find that in Jesus, everyone sits down as an equal. Man and woman, prostitute and king, moral and immoral, one race and another race, Republican and Democrat. Everyone. Everyone's an equal in God's family when you receive the grace of God through faith in the gospel. In the good news. And when you come to believe, and when you come to see Jesus for who he really is, you find rest. What a great word for this season rest. Because that's how Matthew ends. He's giving you a, a foreshadow. The very last verse in verse 17 he says this So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David, to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. See, again, you could read that and be like, okay, that's great. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus is beginning the seventh seven of generations. So if you look at the text. He says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. They, they operated in cycles of seven. So you had seven, and then seven. Then you have David. And then you have seven, and then seven, which is 14. Then you have the deportation to Babylon. And then you have seven, and seven. So we're at six, seven cycles of generations, and now you have Jesus, who is the seventh seven. What does that mean? Okay, it's, yes, that's math. You did math. Congratulations, but what does that mean? Seven is an important number all throughout Scripture. God rests on the seventh day. The Sabbath is on the seventh day, a day of rest. Every seven years, farmers were told to allow their fields to rest so they could be replenished. And after seven cycles the 50th year was the year of Jubilee where all servants were freed and all debts were forgiven and it was a year to signify the eternal rest that would come one day. Seven marks rest. And here, Matthew says, Jesus, who's going to be born in a manger, the Christmas story is emblematic of the reality that Jesus is the ultimate rest. He is the seventh seven. Isn't that amazing how God in his providence set that up? To begin the seventh seven. And he does this because he wants you to understand that when you read the life of Jesus and as you consider the Christmas story, that you would see that it's not just a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time. It's good news. It's gospel that happened, that's delivered to you. And that you are welcome to God's family through God's grace by believing the good news and who Jesus is. Because Jesus is someone that welcomes all people to himself. You may feel unworthy. You're welcome in God's family. You've been, you may have been striving to prove your worth. Well, you're welcome to God's family and you're going to find rest there. You may be full of pain and heartache during this season. You're welcome to God's family, and you're going to find rest there. You you may have been striving so hard to keep up appearances during the season. When you come to Jesus, you find rest there in his family. See, God not only welcomes everybody in through Christ, but he also gives rest to us. See, my prayer is that as we move through this season and as we do the slow march to Christmas That you wouldn't hide away the foundation of this beautiful season. You wouldn't hide away the message of Christmas, but that you would remind yourself each and every day that the reason that this season has the potential for warmth and for beauty and for connection and for even rest on your vacation that you're going to go on is because Jesus was born And he is the ultimate rest who welcomes all people to himself. And it's good news, guys. It's not good advice. It's good news because it happened. And our call is to be people who respond to that and then enjoy the rest that God provides. Will you pray with me? God, I'll be honest. I don't experience that rest all the time. I get so busy with other stuff, with all of the details and responsibilities and offense, all the different things. I miss out on the rest that you offer. I miss out on the the truth of Christmas. God, I want to thank you that you have welcomed everyone in this room into your family through faith that grace is made available. I want to ask you, God, that as we consider this season, and as, as we feel that pressure and get anxious and struggle at times, that it would connect something in our mind to our heart that would say, let me pull back for a second and remember what this is all about. I'm welcoming God's family, and I can find rest. As I approach Christ, would we have that disposition and that heartbeat throughout this Advent season? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.